Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Matthew Taylor. I'm Chief Executive at the RSA, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you all to today's RSA online event. I'm absolutely delighted to have the chance to talk today to Rebecca Henderson. Joining us all the way from Massachusetts, Rebecca is the John and Natty MacArthur University Professor at Harvard and teaches the Reimagining Capitalism course at Harvard Business School. Although, as you're going to hear in a minute, she's actually one of ours. I say that as a Brit. She's a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and her new book, Reimagining Capitalism, explores how business, having contributed to lots of the problems we face, can now become part of the solution to challenges like climate change, widening inequality, and the decay of our political institutions. It's a really compelling account of how the dial can be shifted towards a system where good business means doing what's right. And it's full of great examples of organizations all over the world leading the charge on socially and environmentally responsible practices. So Rebecca, thank you for joining us. Matthew, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So look, Rebecca, I'm going to have to start with a terrible admission, which is that I picked up your book about a week ago and I thought my heart sank. I thought, oh, no, it's going to be one of those books about CSR, ESG, philanthropic capitalism, how business, businesses are all lovely and grey and the world's going to be changed by rich people being nice. And it, the book really isn't that, and we're going to get into that. But but tell me, you must have had a sense of that writing it, that you were writing into a kind of space where there's a lot of other stuff, not all of it with the kind of intellectual rigor that you had. So tell me first, what were you trying to add to this debate in writing the book? To be frank, I think much of the writing in this space is, let me describe it as high variance. Um, <laughs> there's so much wishful thinking that, you know, oh, business can do the right thing and it's going to be fine on the one hand. And on the other, there are many, many people who believe that the whole idea is ridiculous, that we don't need to reimagine capitalism. We need to throw it out. And so I was trying to write a book for all those people I know in business and out who have a kind of intuition that we, we could do this better, but are appropriately cynical, my students are super cynical, and need some kind of roadmap that yes, we could change our light bulbs and do nice things, but how would that actually add up to system change? And that's the book I tried to write, is yes, I know it seems unlikely, but business might be a super valuable ally in completely transforming our system. Yeah, because one, one of the a phrase that has popped into my head reading those kinds of slightly complacent books, I think it's Longfellow has a line which he says, how vainly men themselves amaze. And you read those books and there's a kind of sense of business patting itself on the back, quite often simply because it's better than businesses that are worse than them, as it were, that... that and, and that in a sense, it's a story about businesses keeping their own noses clean, maybe trying to do a, a bit of good. Now, you know, your book is full of stories of businesses that were doing a lot of harm and with new leadership, new intention, sometimes not people at the top, but people at different levels in the organization, inspirational figures driving change. But it is at the core of it, the, in your book, 
is this message that says it's not just about individual businesses doing better for themselves. It is about going to the heart of the systems which are no longer fit for purpose. So to summarize the big idea in the book, I believe that we will not solve the massive problems we face, climate change, inequality, institutional degradation, unless and until we rebalance our system. That yes, free markets are great, but they need to be balanced by democratically accountable, strong, transparent government and a strong civil society. And the only reason that this business stuff might be really important is it might help us with that rebalancing. That, that's sort of the heart of what I believe. And it comes from, I'm, I'm a greenie through and through. It comes from my obsession with climate change. Like we really need coordinated government action to address climate change and businesses doing all this great stuff. And is that helpful? Could it actually help get us closer to what we need? So yeah, you, uh, you read the book for sure. That, that's where I'm going. So Rebecca, the, you know, one of the, great things about the book is it's extremely readable and fascinating and, and, and does have lots of great kind of human stories in it. So I wanted to kind of pull out a couple of those examples of, of companies that really have completely changed the way they do things and had impact. But in doing so, I want you also to answer a question that the, 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 the book raised for me, which is, you know, there are a lot of businesses doing very different kinds of, of things. And in a way, your book reminded me slightly of a, of a book called Reinventing Organizations by Frederick Laloux, which is also full of, you know, really amazing examples of businesses behaving in kind of unbusiness-like ways in, in, in many ways. And he's particularly focused on organizations with very limited hierarchy, where they really devolve power throughout the organization. But my question, I guess, is why is it that... that given there are so many examples now, we still see these as being the exception. You know, we still view these examples as being slightly, slightly odd. Is there ever going to come a point where our fundamental view of business starts to change? I hope so. It's a puzzle that goes back at least 100 years. I mean, your example of Lalou's book, We've known for a long time that there is a better way to run most organizations. That if you treat people with dignity and respect, give them decent wages and benefits, the tools they need, the power they need, um, have a purpose for the organization, which is not just to make me rich, that those organizations can do amazing things. I mean, we, we've known that for at least 100 years. It, it's super tough to change. And, uh, you know, you say, Thank you for all the great things you're saying about my book. I will be sending over the case of really excellent wine after we finish the conversation. <laughs> um, but uh, but one, one of the things that, that keeps me grounded is I was 20 years the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management at MIT. And um, Kodak was, you know, once the people used to say of Kodak, there was nothing more profitable that was legal. And it went it went down in the face of, of, of digitization. And it, I was, that was a coincidence, but it's a deeply ironic one because that's what I did. I studied large organizations that could not see the world was changing. So my interpretation of why we're not seeing more broad adoption of these models is twofold. One, it's hard. 
really paying attention to an organization, investing yourself emotionally, making the long-term investments that are going to enable you to be a real leader in changing the system, those are not something you can do on Tuesday morning. And you have to be both a fantastic manager and emotionally engaged in order to really make that happen. And so why do it if you don't have to? And um, as, my, as I think about the world, we have some visionary leaders um, all the way up and down the organization who can see what happen what's happening and go, oh my God, we gotta get moving. <laughs> we have to get moving. And so we've got these pioneers that are out in front and everyone else is going, you know, really? Do we have to do that? Just as Kodak said, do, do we really have to transform? I spent six months with Nokia in Finland trying to persuade them that Apple was a real threat to their business. They said, ah, we're making a million phones a week. Go away. Uh, much more politely than that. And, you know, it was six months. But it, it's very hard to completely change how you think about what it means to be a manager and what the role of the firm is. So, so many firms are still stuck on, it's all about maximizing profits, don't bother me about anything else. The idea that thinking about other things could be a real insight into change and could really improve the operation of the organization, it's like, nah, nah. I mean, I was teaching a case at HBS on uh, Mondragon, the uh, employee-owned firm in Spain. And, you know, the students were not happy. I was getting comments like, what is this, Spanish communists? And I said, no, no, this is real capitalism. You know, the, the owners, are, the employees own the firm and they run the firm. And, and finally, one of the students said, well, okay, but can this really work at scale? I mean, Mondragon was a 60, 16, euro billion, 16 billion euro company that had been going for 50 years. <laughs> it's like, it's just very hard, I think, to understand that we really need change. And so you've got this wild dilemma of sort of everyone who's not in business understanding that we're about to go off a cliff and things really need to change. And a lot of business people saying, you know, this is really hard. And I, I don't want to rag too much. I mean, my mother was an entrepreneur. I had lots of friends who run organizations. It's super hard to make payroll and to go from day to day. But I think really understanding you need to change and put the energy behind that, that takes energy and focus. But do you think part of it, Rebecca, is that in a sense, if there's one thing that the kind of unreconstructed free market right and the anti-capitalist left agree about is they agree about a mythical idea of what a business should be. So in a sense, you know, some of the most vocal voices are arguing either the kind of Friedman view, which is businesses should just maximize shareholder value full stop. And then, of course, the, the anti-capitalist left says, well, yes, absolutely right. That is what businesses do. All they do is maximize shareholder value. So they agree about one thing and they agree about what business is. And therefore all the kind of, I don't know, the soggy moderates or whatever, who are trying to say, well, actually, no, there's all sorts of different models. And actually fewer and fewer businesses, big businesses simply line up behind this idea of a kind of cutthroat shareholder value model. That kind of gets drowned out because as I say, on both political wings, there are people who want you to have a very simplistic view of how business operates. And I've been on both right and left wing podcasts and I get beaten up from both, both ends. Like, oh, come on, Rebecca, this is ridiculous. So, so let me give like the two minute version of why it's not crazy. Firstly, to the Friedmanites, maximizing shareholder value only maximizes freedom and prosperity when markets are genuinely free and fair. 
And if prices don't reflect real costs, if you can throw infinite quantities of carbon dioxide out the window for free and impose massive damage on everyone else, that's not a genuinely free market. And if there are millions of people who can't participate because of where they were born and the color of their skin, that's not a genuinely free market. And if one of the ways you make money is flooding the political system with money in order to change the rules in your own favor, that's not a free and fair market. So the easy answer to that on both the left and the right is, well, let's just have a government to uh, you know, fix it, get the rules right, and then we're done. But we don't have a government that's doing that. Some countries do. But many places in the world, our institutions um, are either in free fall or we're never strong. And so how should we think about this? I believe that business has a very strong economic interest in addressing some of the problems we face, that climate change is going to be a disaster for business, that accelerating inequality is inherently unjust, but is also bad for business. Who are they going to sell to? Who are they going to hire? What are they going to do when the democracy comes crashing down? Um, everything I think we know from looking at how countries grow and at our own history suggests that you need this this democratic institution to balance the market. So where's that gonna come from? This is the truly crazy idea in my book, that the important thing business should be doing right now is arguing for stronger institutions to control themselves. That right now here in the US, business should be saying, we must get rid of Citizens United. I stand with a free democracy, every vote should be counted. Gerrymandering should be just as obnoxious as LGBTQ uh, discrimination. And if I'm in a state where the state government is actively suppressing the vote, I'm not comfortable about that. I think that's both the right thing to do, but that and 25 cents get you a cup of coffee. I also think it's actually economically advantageous. Now. The big issue, as I tell, tell the story as well, it sounds okay, Rebecca, maybe, but that sounds like a collective goods problem, right? You know, Matthew, if you ran all of business, you might do this because, you know, you would say, oh, I got to fix climate change, I got to fix inequality. But we have a collective action problem. And really what the book tries to lay out is why these purpose-driven firms might be a way to fix the collective action problem. Because humans are smart. We fix collective action problems all the time. So, you know, we act for the common good. We group together in towns and cities and families and companies and do things together when each one of us individually could stay home and do nothing because together we're going to be better off. So for me, it's all about solving the collective action problem. And as you know, I have a theory as to how business could do that. And this doesn't feel to me like the muddy middle. It feels like the absolutely existentially vital thing that must happen in the next 10 or 20 years if we are to keep our society uh, sustainable and free. Yeah, you see, your, your, your book goes to two places that I try to take businesses in conversations I have with them and find it hard. The first is it, it goes to system change. So you say it's not, as I, as I said earlier, it's not good enough that you are as a as a business can say that you're okay and you're somehow not implicated in climate change or you're not implicated in inequality but if the system you're part of is implicated in those things you need to be a system leader as well and that i absolutely think is true and i think that one of the failings of business leadership 
is that business leaders are too shy to challenge other business leaders to bring together their peers and say, what can we do together? And you have some fine examples in the book in relation to, I think, soy production and beef production, for example, of where there's been real change resulting from a whole industry coming together and acting together, spurred on by NGOs and by public opinion. So you, you talk about the system thing and then you go further into something which I don't even really raise a businesses because I'm probably, <laughs> your book has inspired me, I'm too defeatist, which is business should care about politics. It should care about the state of, of democracy. So that, that's fantastic. But let's talk about government a bit because, because your book also absolutely chimed with somewhere I'd got to in my own thinking and also thinking about, about the RSA in our next stage of our work, which is, you know, Thank you, by the way, I'm going to cast you as an American for the, con the context of this comment. Thank you for, 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 for being the one country that makes our own government look competent and benign. Um, but um, the conclusion I've reached is, is that for reasons which aren't just to do with the quality of the leadership that we have got and that you have got, governments are, find it increasingly difficult, it seems to me, to be system changers. I'm not sure they've ever found it particularly easy. And they don't really have the incentives to engage in complex debates where it looks as though there's conflict between producers, conflict between the interests of producers and the interests of consumers. And so the, 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 the tendency which you've described, which is to see government as the first mover when it comes to these complex systemic challenges, I think we've got to rid ourselves of that. Not, as I say, just because of the particular people who run government and our disappointment with them, but just because government's overwhelmed whether it's 24-hour media and social media, whether it's the complexity of the modern world, the decline of deference, all these kinds of things. And instead, we need to see government as the final piece in a puzzle which we have nearly completed ourselves. That it's business and civic actors working together have to get to the point where the solution they take to government is one where government feels, okay, all right, well, we know what we have to do here. And it looks like you've kind of lined up most of the stakeholders. So yes, okay we can put the final piece in place. And that's an alternative, isn't it, to a right-wing view that says government just causes trouble and a left-wing view which tends to think, well, government is the only solution. What your book argues, and or certainly what I've taken from it, is we've got to get moving in civil society and business in order that we can give government challenges which government can realistically expect it to, expect to be expected to rise to. Brilliant. Yes, exactly. I first came to believe this as I was working with the food companies who were trying to join together to address problems of deforestation in Brazil and Indonesia. That they were acting together as buyers of beef and soy and palm oil. And they were saying, well, only buy sustainable and we want to do the right thing. And finding that, yes, they could make the coalition hold. And yes, it was sort of okay, but not really that they needed that final piece. They needed the governor on the ground to say uh, logging is illegal. Or in the case of textiles, employing children is not okay, or abuse in, uh, abusing your workforce is not all right. But this is exactly what happened in these cases, is that the companies, and I know you know how tricky this is, the companies went to local political leaders and said, we think we can help the whole community and you be successful. Here's what we propose. What do you think? And in making that, those proposals, 
and, and you stress this, super important to work with civil society, with leaders on the ground, with representatives of labor, with NGOs who really understand what's going on, because no one wants business running their country. I mean, we, we have a name for that. Um, and so really making, you know, trying to shape the whole system and taking it to government. And I think we're beginning to see something similar happen in the so-called developed world, where you see firms increasingly getting desperate for some form of carbon regulation, right? We have to address climate change. And so how do we do that? Well, global mechanisms have failed. In the US, national mechanisms have failed. So you see business going state house by state house, uh, city by city, and saying, you know, we could address climate change right here and it won't harm the economy and here's how we'll do it and would you do this please <laughs> and uh, could this be a model for sort of system change at the large level i mean every time i talk about this <laughs> i say you know is this creepy or is this good news that a huge fraction of the world's wealth is owned by a very small number of people. Well, here's why it might be good news, because they can't diversify away from the risks we face. If you own, if you're a member of the Wallenberg family, or you're the pension fund of Japan, you have so much money that you can't, you can't say, oh, I'll just invest in firms that aren't subject to climate risk. It's like the whole economy. You have to hold the whole economy. The Japanese hold 1.7 trillion in assets. And, and so climate change is a real existential threat to you, to your wealth. And there's only like, pick a number, 15 of them, 40 of them, maybe 100. So they're going to firms in their portfolio. They're going to governments and say, is that good news or bad news? And the reason I keep stressing purpose and the reason I keep talking about engagement with civil society is this could go to a very bad place. <laughs> and you, you can see how that plays out, right? So I think it's really important that, yes, purpose sounds like a lot of blather, but I really want to be able to measure the impact of firms. I want to know what their engagement is. I want to know how they're treating their employees. I want to know their purpose is authentic because I'm also thinking, thinking that we need to change the whole we get a bit technical, the normative regime, the culture, like how we think about business and our expectations of business. And I want business leaders to change how they think about who they are and the role they play. And I know this is bizarrely optimistic or just bizarrely audacious, but I came to it because I was desperate. I, um, I could not see another pathway through the mess we're in. So in your book, you also talk quite a lot about finance, which is very important because one of the gaps often in accounts of how business can make a difference is that they, they, they focus particularly on consumer facing brands where there's a, there's a real interest, of course, in responding to consumer pressure. But actually, it's often the money men and they are generally men in the background who call the shots. And, and you talk about the growth of impact investing and the growth of ESG and all of that. And, and, and that's good. I guess there was a question though, which is, I was reading the other day about the kind of emergence of capitalism and, and the values of medieval society. And of course, one of the very strong values in medieval society was that it was wrong to make money from money, that you should only make money by doing something of value to people, but making something, growing something. And that to make money simply by having money was 
well, sinful. And I, I guess, given the importance of finance to our world and to the immense wealth of the people you've just spoken about, is it a structural problem for us that, that, that so much of what finance does is not really about, it's not, 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 not only is it not about tackling climate change or inequality, it's not really uh, even about, about generating stuff. It's simply making money out of money and that that has all sorts of perverse consequences for the system as a whole. For sure. Not my area. I know enough about finance to be dangerous. <laughs> I think reforming the capital markets is critical. But, um, you know, I'm going to suggest that if you haven't, you should talk to Anat Admati at Stanford University, who is a Chicago-trained economist, came up through finance, believed all the models, and in 2008 went, oh, my goodness. And she is excellent on this set of questions. Um, I spend my time focusing on the way the measurement systems have to change. So, you know, I'm a big fan of Sir Ronald Cohen's stress on impact accounts. That is that we should know the damage and the good that every firm is, is causing. Uh, his group just published um, open source database of their first pass uh, measures of the environmental damage that 1,800 of the world's largest firms are causing. And I, I must mention, because one of my colleagues, George Serafim, is, is leading that project. And they found that a third of the firms in the database, for a third of the firms in the database, the environmental harm they're causing is greater than their profits. And for another third, it's greater than 25% of their profits. <laughs> and we're not even talking about some of the other forms of damage. And these are just first pass measures. And so I'm hoping that transparency will be helpful in addressing these kinds of issues. Because of course, I'd love to have the impact measures for some of the financial firms, but, uh, but a huge issue. I mean, in general, the concentration of wealth and power is an enormous problem, as many have said. Um, and I'm making the wild suggestion that the wealthy and the powerful should recognize how dangerous it is and give up some of their own power. You talk towards the end of the book about the vital importance of institutional renewal and democratic renewal. And, and I was really heartened to see you writing about that and to, and to think about you talking about those issues to uh, uh, business uh, leaders. And, and I, as we draw to a close, Rebecca, you know, you're 40 days away from the big day in America. And it's just worth reflecting isn't it on that issue of um uh of institutions that the american election as i understand it that uh, joe biden may have to win by three percent because of the vagaries of the electoral college and so issues which might seem rather abstruse they might seem rather obscure about the design of our democratic institutions about the way they work about our voting systems they're absolutely critical to our destiny. They are absolutely central. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes in the last election. But because the Electoral College of the United States over, um, is first past the post and um, 
And because gerrymandering is widespread, um, <laughs> there is no guarantee that if uh, Joe Biden wins a majority of the votes that he will become the president. And, you know, this is all, I hope it's just a media storm, but just today or yesterday, Trump said that he didn't consider himself bound by the results of the election. And that um, if a majority, you know, he was willing to throw out the mail-in votes and that they weren't legitimate and, you know, he wasn't sure he would step down from power if, uh, if the majority for Mr. Biden what came from mail-in votes. And a few Republicans spoke up, but not all of them. Um, to refuse to accept the results of the election, um, one of the, the deep issues here is that there's no constitutional right to vote in the American Constitution. States have complete control of the voting process and, uh, and they have been fighting and cheating and lying about it since 1800. Uh, my husband, who's the political scientist, James Marone, has just published a book on this called um, A Republic of Wrath, How American Politics Turned Tribal. And it's all about the history of voting in the United States and the role of immigration and race in shaping political behavior. So these are not abstruse issues at all. These are central. And I think we know that throwing out the democracy would be a bad idea, not only for us as a society, but for business. That when you lose democracy, you move to crony capitalism and extraction and the control of the society by the few for the few. And uh, all that dynamism and free entry and entrepreneurship and, and growing, I mean, you don't have it anymore. I have a friend who's an entrepreneur in one of the Eastern European company, countries where the president has moved to take control. And uh, he built a business from scratch. He built it to $50 million, uh, $50 million worth of, of, of uh, revenue. And I said, well, you know, it's amazing. You know, Fred, whoa, fantastic. He said, well, I don't want to grow it any bigger because I'm afraid the president and his friends will take it. You know, I, I don't mean to seem alarmist, but when the sitting president of the United States says he is not sure he will accept the results of the election, I'm alarmed. <laughs> and my hope is that business leaders will say, wait, 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 no, no bad idea. <laughs> don't want to do that. Um, I think it's in their economic interest and I absolutely think it's in their social and civic interest. And you do say in the book, because I don't want anyone watching this to think that we're being naive, that, you know, um, Trump has got a lot of support amongst certain business leaders um, and a lot of, you know, money coming to him from the kind of rich people that you're hoping will be part of uh, the process of change. So this is why books like yours are important, because it's not as if this battle has been won. It's a battle that needs to be joined. And at the end of the book, you, having told us some fantastic stories about individuals who have made an enormous difference, and I was inspired by so many of those stories, you, you, you say to us, but don't think that history is just the history of great individuals. Uh, change comes bottom up. We can all make a difference. You give us some advice at the end of the book about how we can make a difference. I think that's all true, Rebecca. But you know, whilst 
the history of the world may not be the history of individuals, it does feel to me as though what's going to happen in a few weeks' time in your country is such a moment of incredible importance. And it's very difficult to see how the kinds of agendas you were talking about go forward uh, if the result uh, in November is not one that, that gives us a bit of hope. I mean, just to finish, am I wrong to think the election in America is that important? Do you think that the things that you have confidence about will continue even if Donald Trump gets a second term? And I know it's cheeky, but Rebecca, who do you think is going to win? <laughs> I think Mr. Biden is going to win. I really do. Um, am I sure? No. I believe that to be the case, but of course it might not be. And of course, if uh, President Trump were re-elected, I think that would be a serious setback for the agenda I outline in the book. It would not, however, be a reason to stop trying. You know, sometimes people say to me, well, is it too late to solve climate change? And it is absolutely too late if by that you mean, can we go back to normal and lower the temperatures and reclaim the climate we had? It's absolutely too late. Does that excuse you from acting? Absolutely not. Because believe me, it can get a lot worse. This is an ongoing battle, an ongoing war, trying to reshape our society so it's both environmentally sustainable and socially just. There will be battles that are won and battles that are lost, but they, none of it excuses us from, from, from trying anymore. People sometimes ask me, am I optimistic? And I say in the, oh yeah, this is certainly going to happen like we got this nailed sense. Absolutely not. No. Who could rationally be optimistic? Am I hopeful? Yes, I am. We have to solve these problems. And the vast majority of the world's population can see that. We will solve them. The question is only when. So, Rebecca, you've given uh, me a great book and some fantastic ideas. I'm just going to give you a quote which isn't in your book, but I just think captures a lot of what you're saying, which I think I read first in a book by Cornell West and Roberta Unger, which says, it's not so much hope that leads to action as action that leads to hope. So, oh, for sure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I thought you might agree with that, Rebecca. Well, look, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and giving such a thorough, such a hopeful account of where we can go from here and how business can shift from being part of the problem to becoming part of the solution. As I said, reimagining capitalism is full of you know fantastic stories from the American flower company that's run by three joint uh, chief executives to the relatively low-ranking person in the tea company who started a revolution that transformed the way that tea production takes place all around uh, the world. So. Uh, do get hold of it. Information about how you can get hold of a copy will be in the sidebar chat and on the RSA events uh, social uh, media. More broadly, do please keep up with the RSA's channels for updates on further conversations like these, as well as fresh insights from our policy research team and information also on how you can get involved with the work of our growing global fellowship. All that's left for me to say now is thank you to Rebecca Henderson and thank you all for watching. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.